Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Dr. Casey Grover, happy to have you back with me for another episode. In this episode, I will be interviewing a young man who is in recovery, and we will be talking about his journey to recovery. Let's get started. Now, two quick warnings before we start. First, there are a few adult words in this episode. And second, I'm out of state right now, and I don't have my usual recording equipment, so the audio quality is a little less than usual. Aiden, welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Thank you. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, currently, um, music is my biggest, um, well, that's definitely my biggest um, coping skill at the moment. Um, You know, I I wasn't always this way. You know, currently, um, what is just crazy to me is that I'm currently living a life substance free. You know, I never envisioned myself doing that when I was in my addiction. I never envisioned myself being able to go through a single day, um, you know, without a substance in my life. But, you know, here I am doing it. I'm almost eight months clean. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, Congratulations. it's mind blowing to me. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me, how did you get started or at what age did you get started? Um on drugs or it with anything well any substance so i mean i growing up i had you know i had two loving parents you know um you know it a lot of people think that it has to do with the the background that you grow up in but it's it's not really honestly it's not that it's not the background that you grow up in it's the situations you put yourself in the crowd that you hang out with um you know, when I was younger, you know, I got through elementary school just fine. You know, I, I enjoyed, you know, Pokemon cards like a lot of kids do, you know. And um, once I got into middle school, things changed. Um, I got diagnosed with depression in sixth grade and panic disorder. Um, so I went my first year of middle school. I was living in Gilroy, California. And, you know, I, I had my friends that, you know, I grew up with. Um, but in that summer, I ended up moving here to Hollister, California. And, you know, I didn't have, I, I ended up becoming, you know, kind of a lone wolf. Um, I wasn't, you know, situated with um, a social environment at all. You know, I was, I just kind of roamed the school alone. I did everything alone um, because it, it was, I definitely came into a very different environment than I was used to. Um, in seventh grade, um, I got bullied really bad. Um, one time I was using the restroom and four kids broke into the stall and molested me. Um, but so so that definitely had a, a big, a big play on, 
you know, the kind of person I was about to turn into. In seventh grade, I began to use weed and nicotine like most kids do nowadays. Um, and it just starts off younger and younger. You know, my, my mom works at a elementary school and frequently a lot of those kids end up getting caught with vapes, which is just mind blowing to me because that, you know, when I was in fifth grade, you know, we were trading Pokemon cards and fidget spinners. Uh, but now, you know, 11, 10 year olds are smoking weed and nicotine and it, it that shit, it, that stuff is just mind blowing to me. Yeah. Um, Aiden, tell me how, how old are you now? I'm 17. I'm going to be 18 in September. Okay. Tell me when, when did you really feel like your, your problems with using substances got worse? Well, in eighth grade, it went from just smoking weed and occasionally nicotine to drinking. And from there it progressed to psychedelics. And no matter what substance I used, I constantly had this absence of feeling um, and that's, that was the biggest factor in me continuing to use is it wasn't the, the feeling itself that addict, that got me addicted. It was the absence of feeling when I didn't have it. Mm. And so it was probably about the summer of eighth grade that I started using pills, um, specifically Xanax, Klonopin, Percocet, um, I was using legitimate Percocet at the start of my use. I was the 15s. Um, but, you know, that ended up, no matter what I used, I just, I always had this absence of feeling, this absence of, you know, and, and it was always just like, no matter what I use, it'll never be enough. Mm. And yeah. going in a freshman year, you know, I had never brought anything on campus, but it was a daily thing to bring, you know, my vape with me. I couldn't get through an hour without, you know, hitting some, some THC. Um, and, um, you know, it, you know, I was, I started, you know, hanging with the wrong people. Um, I got involved with a lot of people who were affiliated with the Northern Riders. Um, but, you know, at that point I wasn't in that deep, you know, I, I, I had a chance to, to stop what I was doing, but I didn't want to. Um, and so my sophomore year, I, I had been using, you know, the colored bars, which I didn't know at the time, but were fentanyl. And, um, you know, and then when I started using those, which were cheaper and felt a lot better, you know, I, I stopped using the actual pharma pram Xanax bars, which were not fentanyl at the time. Now there's just no, you know, there's no telling what's in any pill that you take. Right. But when I was using those colored bars, you know, I snorted them, smoked them, popped them, did whatever I could do to feel as high as I could. Um, and, um, in my sophomore year, I got introduced to, uh, M thirties. So the first time I ever used them, I overdosed. Um, and at this point in time, I already had about six overdoses under my belt. Um, and the, the, my first time using M30s, my, the overdose, I basically, it was about four in the morning. My dog woke up my parents. She, she's my hero now, you know, uh, she woke up my parents scratching on the door. They thought she had to use the restroom, but little did they know I was already in the death rattle stage of overdose. 
Um, if you don't know what that is, it's basically a noise that you make when your oxygen is, you know, running low. Um, and it's basically just gasping for air in an unconscious state. And when you're in that state, from what I understand, you have probably 10 minutes tops left. So they called the ambulance, you know, they didn't have Narcan at the time wow. um, because they didn't know that I was using fentanyl. So they were, you know, and they're still traumatized to this day. You know, there's still just certain patterns that I even have sober just scare them of course i mean i can't imagine what a parent could i mean i just can't imagine what they went through from their perspective um but from what i understand because i was completely unconscious for probably around 12 hours um basically they walked in my room i was laying on my stomach my mom turns me over and my lips are blue and i'm barely breathing so they call the ambulance and they're they're telling them basically how they're telling my mom basically how to do CPR and she's the way that she describes it to me it just it, it makes me very emotional um you of know course, basically yeah. her her counting each breath that you know and and she said probably around every 30 seconds i would take a breath um and she's counting each breath that I take while she's, you know, giving me CPR and, you know, the operators instructing her how to do so. Um, but anyways, the, the cops in the ambulance get there. Um, the first thing they did was provide help. Um, and, you know, I've always had just this hatred for, you know, um, law enforcement but i was saved by a cop um they did see they registered cpr it wasn't working they narcan me four times that didn't do anything so they had to defibrillate me um basically electric with an electric magnetic whatever i don't know exactly okay the it's called details a defibrillator yeah. yeah keep going and basically they um they revived me that way um two of my ribs were broken i was registered to the er and hazel hawkins and I woke up there, threw up, probably just threw my lungs out. And um, then I got transferred to the ICU in Santa Clara. I was there for a week when I was finally conscious and definitely irrational. You know, I was very angry at everybody as if it was their fault. I was there. Um, and this is something that happens when you're an addict a lot because you know all you're thinking about is the absence of substance all right. i wanted to do was go back and do more even though i had never even done them before previous to that point all that i wanted was my perks all i wanted was those m30s um and um you know and i hurt you know, i definitely hurt um you know the people i love the most because a lot of a lot of addicts believe that you know they're the only ones going through the pain but it everybody who is around you is experiencing pain maybe not at the level that you are maybe not in the way that you are but they are in pain you're you're putting your family through a lot of pain when you know you're you're using something that is that um heavy and it is not your fault it's not my fault that i 
did or said the things that I did, because in my opinion, and this is an opinion that comes from experience, I personally believe that using when you're an addict is a subconscious decision. It's not a conscious decision that you make rationally. It is something that you do because that's what you do. It's your nature as an addict to use. Right. And basically, you know, and, and even as someone who's in recovery, I still, you know, I, I still have cravings, you know, that, that stuff never goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, my deterrent is the amount of pain that I put my mom through my girlfriend through who stood by me through everything. And after that overdose, I continued to use a lot, a lot, a lot, like, and for a while it was just M thirties, but even at some point that became not enough. At one point I was popping about 20 fentanyl perks per day and I wasn't really nodding out. That's the sensation that people who use fentanyl or Xanax look for. You're looking to nod out, which is going unconscious and you're kind of semi-conscious. You can feel it for probably the 30, the first 30 minutes of you being unconscious and unaware, but then you just black out and immediately it's the next day. Um, and you have no recollection of what happened during that time, but you were going to say something. Yeah. I was going to say, tell me, you know, you're, you've, how did you kind of recover from that overdose? I mean, with broken ribs and coming into the ICU, Tell me about what it was like just getting out of the hospital. It was definitely very uncomfortable. Um, I was very lucky because they had a PS4 there. Um, so oh. I was playing, I was playing <laughs> Spider-Man. Right. Playing Spider-Man. Uh, but what yeah, was- it was just, and there was this one nurse. Oh my goodness. Uh, I would be, you know, one time I was on the phone with my brother. She would regularly come into my room And when I said, you know, I don't enjoy being here, she would be like, whose fault is that? And one time I was on my on the phone with my brother when she said that and he was just like, um, excuse me. And she walked out of the room like she it was awkward, of course, because, you know, just imagine being somebody so ignorant and then someone calls you out for it that you weren't even expecting to be hearing you. You know, she probably gets away with that a lot, I would imagine. But you know, um, and from that point on, she, she put on a fake face, you know, because, you know, I was regularly on the phone and it was, it was, it was definitely very disrespectful because, you know, a lot of, and, and as you said, before we started this, you know, a lot of doctors, they see, they don't see the, the story, they see the patient and, you know, that's very true because, you know, a lot of, and that's happened, not just that one time I was in the ER, you know, or ICU. Um, but, you know, there were several times where I'd be in the ER and, you know, I'd be like, man, I don't want to be here. I'm in so much pain. And, you know, doctors would treat it as if I put myself there intentionally, but it's not, it's not an intentional thing. As I've said, it's a subconscious decision to use because it's an addict's nature to use. Yeah. Um, but, let, 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 let's briefly just unpack that interaction yeah. with the nurse a little bit. And, and and as you and I talked about before this episode, you know, I got zero training in medical school about addiction. 
And I'm grateful that at my hospital, they've actually asked me to teach some of the nurses, the new nurses yeah. about addiction, because I, it took me years to really understand how the brain works with addiction. So yeah, it's talk a... to me, what are some, and, and obviously don't call it any names, but mm -hmm. give me some examples of healthcare interactions that were hurtful to you and healthcare interactions that were helpful to you. Generally, just a lot of healthcare providers haven't had compassion for what I was going through because they only see the addict. They see the addict, the person who used and got himself put in the hospital. But what they don't see is that, you know, I'm a person who's in a lot of pain and cannot has no coping skills to deal with that pain mm -hmm. because for five years straight, I'm just using over and over every single day. So all of the trauma that I have, I haven't been able to confront it because I haven't been in a rational state of mind where I'm able to do so. But the people who have showed compassion to me and treated me like an actual human, not just an addict who's laying or an addict who's taking up this space in the ER when someone, you know, could have cancer or, and of course, you know, that's not me downplaying anything at all. I'm just saying an addict who is in the hospital should be treated like a human because that's what they are. They're a human who's going through something Absolutely. and something that's difficult and unable to comprehend unless you've been through it yourself. <clears throat> yeah, you said that you said that beautifully on, on my podcast. Um, I covered an episode on stigma. Yeah. Stigma being basically the idea of a kind of a, a judgment or the experience of feeling judgment. And, you know, it's shown to have a mortality difference, yeah. meaning that people who feel stigma are more likely to die from their healthcare condition yeah. if they experience stigma about that condition. Absolutely. And that, that's many things. That's because, obesity, yeah. that's addiction, that's depression. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add on to that. Yeah, of course. I mean, when I would deal with that, I would go home and use more than I planned to because I'm because when you experience something like that, it's like, well, no one sees what I'm going through. No one sees me as me. They only see me as an addict. So I might as well just be one like that. I might as well. That's all I am to them. So that must be all I am. Yeah, I, I have to say early in my career, um, when I was still in training, I, I didn't understand any of this. And I personally regret many of the things that I did and how I spoke to patients with addiction. And, you know, now when I walk in the room, it's like, you know, hey, I'm Dr. Grover. Just need to let you know you're not here to be judged. We're just mm -hmm. here to help you. And it breaks my heart. I mean, my colleague, one, one of my colleagues said, you know, I had a patient thank me for making eye contact with them. This was a patient yeah. with addiction. And um, it, it, it's, it's something that we're working on at, at my hospital. Um, we're hoping to put together, um, kind of some formal education for the staff about all conditions, yeah. including addiction, again, obesity, uh, diabetes. I mean, we've had my staff yeah. at the hospital sometimes make what they don't think is a hurtful comment about someone with diabetes eating a, a candy, but that can really kind of make yeah. someone feel like they're being scrutinized or being oh, judged. Really? And, and in my personal experience, I feel like addiction is the most stigmatized condition. Absolutely. With addiction are treated the most poorly of any condition. Um, just following up on that, did you ever have a positive experience? I know you mentioned compassion, but was yeah. there a particular interaction you, you remember that was really helpful? Quite honestly, I was fading in and out of consciousness a lot. But okay. during the overdose that I spoke about, um, <laughs> 
Well, there was a guy there named Mike Bacon. So we just we just were cracking jokes about his name. And, you know, just people who actually interact with you, you know, and take the time to have a conversation with you when you're in there and empathize with you. It makes all the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, Aiden, what did you feel like you ever hit like a rock bottom or you hit yeah. a time? Tell me about that. Definitely. Um, a lot. I mean, when I was using, I would, I was constantly, you know, thinking about things that I didn't want to have to think about, you know, when in sep September 13th of 2020, a good friend of mine, um, you know, we were using, we were, we were drinking on his porch and, you know, I went inside to get us a couple of beers and the house got shot up. And so I went outside and he was like riddled with holes and bleeding everywhere. So, um, you know, that, that was something that really definitely encouraged my drug use because I lost a good friend. I've lost uh, many friends throughout my time using. Um, but, you know, as, as I, uh, just to continue where I was at, you know, I was using around 20 perks a day and I wasn't nodding out. Um, and I began to use fentanyl, like powder and rocks. Um, and this, it, it was a really bad problem. Um, you know, I, I, I would smoke like maybe half a gram of day of straight fentanyl, pure fentanyl. And eventually I turned to car fentanyl, um, which oh. is actually yeah. something that a lot of people overdose on a grain of salt of car fentanyl. But I was using about two tenths of a gram a day during my rock bottom. And I, I genuinely have no recollection of around th three or four months of my addiction um, because all it was, was me using, nodding out, using, nodding out, because when you're on something as heavy as car fentanyl, you are constantly sick if you're not using it. And I mean, the sickness that you feel, you genuinely feel like you're going to die if you don't use. Yes. So, you know, I, I was asking for money for, you know, from my mom, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take my girl to dinner. And then I would go out and, you know, I would, I would get more fent and, you know, that, that was definitely one of my rock bottoms because, you know, I'm lying to the very people that I love and I could have used that money to take my girl out for dinner, but I used it for drugs. You know, I could have all the money that I've spent on, on substances I could have used for something much more positive, but the sickness that I felt all that I was driven towards is substance. And, you know, and there was so many moments like this. Um, and, you know, my mom, now she can, you know, trust me with $20. You know, we go to the boardwalk, she'll give me $20. You know, if you want to get some food, go ahead and get some food. You know, we went yesterday, you know, she slid me a 20. I was with my girl and we got some food with it, you know, and just little things like this. You know, I spend my money now. I, I run a business. It's um, a reselling business. I sell shoes. Um, and, you know, the fact that now when I have a large sum of money, I'm not thinking, you know, I need to go out and get drugs. 
um, I'm thinking, you know, let me get, let me get some nice, something nice to wear. But my addiction led me to a very dark place. And I think my number one rock bottom was July 10th of 2021. Um, I was out, I was on a lot of Xanax. I was, I was popping perks at the same time, mixing it with alcohol. And I broke into a couple of cars. Um, I was planning to steal a car, go for a joyride, and then eventually just crash and burn. Um, but my plan did not go as, as, as I thought it would. Um, I broke into one of the cars that guy came out of his house with a shotgun. Um, so I run, I felt like I was running really far, but I think I was only a couple of blocks away. Um, and I called my substance counselor. He came to the scene and by then I was already in handcuffs. Um, so I got arrested. I got charged with possession of burglary tools, possession of deadly weapon, possession of brass knuckles, um, vandalism. And I ended up going to jail for about 60 days. Um, and that definitely was an experience that has, you know, um, definitely encouraged my sobriety instead of encouraging substance use. And I could have used it to encourage substance use, but those 60 days, that was the longest time I had been sober in four and a half years. Um, so, you know, and, and just seeing how depressed I, my parents were and not being able to see that before, because I was constantly high seeing how much of a negative impact it had made on them. You know, it broke my heart and I hadn't cried probably since I started using, I still have trouble actually letting out my emotions. I don't know exactly why, but no matter how sad I am, even now, I can't let it out. Um, so, you know, I have to cope in different ways, but, you know, when I was in jail, you know, all the emotions were just running its course because I hadn't been sober for so long. And now I'm seeing all the problems and all the issues that I've made, all the mistakes that I've made, um, for what they really are at face value. And, you know, man, the first two weeks I was probably crying every day. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, how cold that cell is, you know, regardless of whether or not, like when I get off probation, that's the real test of sobriety. But one thing I remind myself is even if I'm not on probation, jail is always there. And that's the end game. Jails, institutions, and death. That is where substance abuse will lead you. Right. Substance use in general. But jail is always going to be there. It doesn't matter if I'm off probation or not. Like, And currently, probation has been a, a big deterrent not to use because I know I'll go to jail if I do. But, you know, right now, I'm pre-planning for when I get off probation so I don't just end up, you know just completely with no plan no like nothing to really base what I'm going to do off of and that is that would be really it would be a bad situation if I was just off probation and I did not plan for it but you know one thing that I know is that one mistake can last a year like I made this mistake in July um 
and you know, I'm still facing the consequences. You know, I, I have to pee in a cup every week and before it was twice a week, but after my six month review, I got, I finally got it switched to once a week because I've been testing clean the entire time I've been on probation. Um, but that that's not the end of my use. The, um, I had gotten out of jail and about seven or eight days later, I relapsed on fentanyl. I woke up, you know, one of the things that fentanyl does to your body, it makes you extremely itchy. So you, you break out in hives. Um, you cannot urinate, you cannot use the restroom at all. Um, so that day, you know, after I had, I had already faced the worst consequences I possibly could have aside from death, um, you know, I used the same thing that got me into that situation. And, you know, I'm sitting in the bathroom for probably like two hours, could not use a restroom at all. And my mom knew it was up at this point. She knew my patterns. And, um, you know, I'm laying in my bed and I start puking like crazy. Um, but when you're sick off fentanyl, you don't just throw up like you do when you're like heroin sick. It, uh, it just forces itself out of your body and it's painful. It's really painful. Now, if there's one thing that's going to make you not want to do drugs, just imagine this sickness. Um, but, you know, she came in my room. I had already been to rehab once before, but, you know, she looked at me and she's like, what do you, what did you use? And I said, Fent. And she said, what are you going to do? And for the first time in my life, I made a decision to go to rehab by myself with nobody, you know, pushing on what I need to do. I made the decision myself to go to rehab and get myself better. And rehab was harder than jail to me because wow. I could not, I, I didn't get visitation, you know, nobody could come see me. Um, I only ever got to see my parents through a zoom call and, you know, I would get a 10 minute phone call just like jail um, at the end of the day. And, um, you know, my parents were very nervous for me coming home. I, I spent 90 days there. I was planning on spending 30, which would not have done shit. Oh, I apologize for the profanity. Um, but, you know, my probation officer made me stay for 90. Um, so I ended up actually getting released after like 83 days because I asked the psychiatrist there if I could do that because I wanted to be there for my one year anniversary with my girl. So November 12th. Uh, 14th, I apologize, but, um, yeah, um, it was, it was difficult coming home because, um, <laughs> about three weeks later. So I, when I was in rehab, I got prescribed a medication called MSAM. It's an experimental medication. It's a antidepressant patch. And little did I know it has a metabolite for methamphetamine in it. So about three weeks later, um, I tested and I ended up coming up positive for meth. And so they locked me up again, even though I was innocent. I had not used meth. I had never used meth in my life. Um, and why, why would a person go from using downers to smoking something that they have never done in their life? But And while I'm getting arrested, my dad's telling them, please check his file. Please. It's, it, he's on medication. But they were completely ignorant. They did not give a, you know, and... Um, they did no research. Um, my first, my first time in court there, uh, during that case, um, they wrote a statement saying my parents are bad parents because they can't keep me away from drugs, even though I was already almost four months sober. 
Um, but my luckily I had we had to pay for a lawyer and it was someone that was at in my first case, he was my um appointed attorney. Um, you know, the free attorney that's provided to you by the courts. Um, and we attained, we retained him and we showed him all the evidence that we, that I was not using. My mom had found an article that, you know, basically said that MSAM has a metabolite for methamphetamine and it can make you test positive for methamphetamine. And luckily my, my lawyer was not stupid and he basically told the prosecution, either you can call the lab or I'm going to call the lab and ask if methamphetamine is genuinely in his system or if it's the metabolite of methamphetamine in his medication, which is MSAM, known as Selegiline. Um, and they called. And guess what? I, did, I was not on meth. It was my medication. And so from there on, they put me on medication testing so that basically it'll come up basic if I when I test positive for meth, it'll say if I'm using it recreationally or if it's coming from my medication, which they should have done in the first place, because I was even before I had been prescribed this medication, I was already on four or five medications and I'm on Seroquel, which can make you test positive for um, what's the word? Uh, it's a it's one of the drugs that they use for heroin addicts um methadone methadone yes seroquel can make you test positive for methadone um i'm on um what's it called uh topamax which can make you test positive for pcp um and i have frequent migraines so i take excedrin which can make you test positive for marijuana sometimes i take Motrin, which can make you test positive for PCP, methadone, and marijuana, and especially Tylenol, because Tylenol has diphenhydramine in it, so that can also make you test positive for marijuana or PCP. Um, so even over-the-counter drugs can strike a false positive, so they should have taken this precaution in the first place, but they didn't, and, you know, and now they now they kiss my woo um so just one quick correction it's tylenol pm is the yes. one that has diphenhydramine in it tylenol in and of itself does not um, um if i just may ask you one question i think one thing that i'm as i'm hearing your story talk to me about trust because it sounds like when you were a kid there were no trust issues with your family mm-hmm. when you went into your addiction there were a lot of trust issues yeah. And now as you're coming out of your addiction, talk to me about earning trust back or how you feel trust is in this early part of your recovery. It took a while, you know, um, when I was in rehab, my mom told me she trusted me, but she didn't. And I can't blame her. Um, you know, I gave her a thousand reasons not to. Um, but, you know, during this time of me being back home, I barely even leave the house. Most mm-hmm. of the, I just spend my days just chilling around the house. Cause I don't need to be, I don't need to be going all around town. You know, there's nothing to do in Hollister anyways. And, you know, <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> most of the time I'm just, you know, and, and I've started up my own business. All the money that I um, have, I invested into shoes because the sneaker game is crazy right now. Yeah. Get buy them for retail. And most of them, like I generally do Jordan fours, threes or ones and a lot of the drops end up going triple their retail value. 
Um, the reselling game is definitely inflated right now. Uh, so it's, and, and I plan to continue to expand this business. I genuinely enjoy doing it. Um, I've always loved shoes, but I've never had the money to, you know, actually check out the shoes that I wanted to, but now I do. And it's all from my hard work. Like I wouldn't be able to do this if I was still using. And it's just little things like that, that have, you know, shown my parents that I can be responsible. I can, you know, I can do my own thing and no one has to worry about if I'm getting high or not. You know, the last seven and a half months I've proven that, you know, and it takes action. You can't just tell them I'm going to, I'm going to be better this time. That's not going to make, that's not reassuring. I'm sorry, but addicts lie all the time. It's again, it's their nature. It's my nature, but you know, you have to constantly work to become the person that you want to be not the person that you are because you've made mistakes and your mistakes don't define you. There's no point in dwelling on the past dwelling on it. Does you no good, but don't forget, don't forget where your mistakes led you. Don't, don't forget the places that you don't want to be. That's, that's what I constantly have to do. Sometimes I beat myself up about it. That's just human nature. But one thing that I've constantly told myself is dwelling on the past does me no good, but I cannot forget that. cell. I cannot forget it because it's always there. It's always there. And I'm about to be an adult. If I make that mistake, when I get off probation, I will be in County. And if I don't like juvenile hall, I'm definitely not going to like County. I just constantly have to remind myself that because that's the only way you can't forget the past, but you cannot live by the past. You have to just continue to move on and become the person that you genuinely want to be. And it's, it, it sounds difficult because it is, it's very difficult. I'm not going to sit here and lie. You know, if you're an addict yourself listening to this, it's going to be difficult, but everything that is hard or everything that is worth working for is difficult. And it's just, it's, that's just life. Life isn't fair. Nothing is going to be fair, but, but you just, you have to continue moving because, you know, there are so, so many young people that are dying from this disease now. And who wants to be a statistic? Cause I don't, I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to just be a number on a board of who died this year. I want to be someone who leaves something behind in this world, who can be remembered as someone who did something positive with all the things that they've been through. That is what I want. That is what I want. Yeah. And that's, oh, sorry. Um, But yeah, that's, that's my music. Like my music, I, I speak about everything that I'm currently experiencing. I still experience depression. I still experience PTSD. I still experience anxiety, but finding an outlet where you can express the way that you feel and turn something negative into something positive is the key. Yeah. I was going to say, Aiden, I've got just a few more minutes here because I actually have to see a patient after this. Okay. And I I have to say, this has been a fantastic conversation. If you're open to it, I'd love to do a follow-up and hear a little bit more about the recovery side of what you've been through, but of course, like a minute or so, you know, tell me about music, your music and how music has been a part of your recovery. I mean, I've been making music for about four and a half years. You know, I I definitely made it during my addiction. Um, 
but currently it's it's been in a state where I never really thought I would be. I mean, I always believed I could, but actually being in a in a position where I can make music that is genuinely good um, and something that people can enjoy, something that I've got I've gotten texts from people saying, hey, this 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 song is like my favorite song right now you know, your, your music has a positive impact on me, that kind of stuff. And even though I don't have a huge following, I'm continuing to grow and I'm, and I'm going to work until I get the recognition that I deserve. And, you know, just those positive affirmations from people who enjoy my music is huge. It, it makes all the difference, uh, just knowing that I'm doing it for a purpose. Um, but, you know, um, it's always been, you know, one of, one of the biggest factors in me getting better, just knowing that I'll always have it here. It'll always be here for me. But if I'm not here, I can't do it. If I, if I die from an overdose, I cannot continue to make music. And that's one of the biggest factors in my life that keeps me going, you know? Um, so it definitely was one of the biggest things that got me sober is just the hope and the, the, the reaffirmation that I know that I can, I can make something out of it. Yeah. And if folks wanted to find your music, how could they find your music? I'm on all platforms. Uh, um, I'm not the first one that comes up yet. Um, so just look up one of, one of my songs that's on all platforms is called nothing to say by Kaji. That's, that's what I go by K A J I nothing to say. You can find that on any platform, SoundCloud, YouTube, YouTube music, Pandora, Amazon Music, Spotify, uh, Apple Music, iTunes, wherever you want, whatever is convenient for you, that you can find it through there. Um, and I would I would appreciate any feedback. Yeah, I listened to a couple of your songs. I think they're great. I look forward to listening to more. Thank you. I should yep. I'll be dropping one soon again. So right on. Stay tuned. Well Unfortunately, I'm, I'm I'm out of time tonight, but no let's worries. plan that we'll connect again and yeah. talk maybe a little bit more about the recovery side and what you're working yeah. on. And I just want to say thank you for your time and for sharing your story. And, and I know I personally learned a lot from talking to you and to the folks listening uh, out there on whatever podcast catcher you're using. I think this has been a great story. And I think the thing that really that. hits home to me is respect. As healthcare providers, yeah. our patients need respect. Absolutely. And that concludes this episode. Please consider sharing this podcast with a colleague. Thank you for listening and thank you for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.